0: In his masterwork, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, Douglas Adams brings us on a fantastic journey of discovering all that we didn't know before, but we're getting ready to know now. One of the volumes in this series is a volume simply titled, Life, the Universe, and Everything. In Life, the Universe, and Everything, we find ourselves meeting with a supercomputer. A supercomputer simply named Deep Thought. The character is very excited about uh, the discovery of Deep Thought. Go to ask Deep Thought a question. They say, the task that we have designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us the answer. The answer, said Deep Thought. The answer to what? The answer to to life, the universe, and everything. Deep thought paused for a moment's reflection. Tricky, he said finally. But can you do it? Again, a significant pause. Yes, said Deep thought. I can do it. There is there is an answer, they said. Yes, said Deep thought. Life, the universe, and everything. There is an answer, but I'll have to think about it. They glanced impatiently at their watch. Well, for how long? How how long exactly are you going to have to think about it? Uh seven and a half million years, replied Deep Thought. Seven and a half million years, they cried? Yes. I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? So, seven and a half million years go by. And obviously the characters that first designed Deep Thought are long gone, but their descendants lived on. Seven and a half million years later, their descendants continue what they started, we are the ones who will hear, finally, the answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything. Shh! I said, I think deep thought is preparing to speak. Do you, do you have an answer? An answer for the question? Interrupted deep thought? Yes. There really is one? To everything? To the question of life, the universe, and everything? Yes. Are you, are you ready to say it? Deep thought said, I don't think you're going to like it. No, but you have to tell us. Tell us. All right. The answer to the great question. Forty-two, said deep thought, with infinite majesty and calm. Forty-two? Is is that all you have to show for seven and a half million years of work? I checked it quite thoroughly, said the computer, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is you've never actually really known what the question is. Now, I need everyone to look at me really quick. I know, eye contact, it's weird. Here's the the thing about Ecclesiastes that I need you to understand. If the book of Ecclesiastes gives you a settled feeling of an answer, rather than a deep desire to ask better questions, you've missed the purpose of the book. Now, we go home after church and we talk about what Pastor David talked about, And if you feel like Ecclesiastes is giving you a settled answer, like wisdom doesn't matter. Or that everything's absurd, do what you want, you've missed the point of the book. The point of the book isn't to give you an answer, because after all, all of the things that the teacher is trying to talk about and preach about is everything that he can discern from life under the sun. He's simply reporting what he has seen and experienced, even with his great capacity for wisdom. No, friends, like those that were seeking the answer to life, the universe, and everything from the computer, deep thought, and were sorely disappointed when he gives him his answer after all of those many seven and a half million years, the computer actually says what we need to hear as well. The problem is not the answer. The problem is the question. The blessing of Ecclesiastes is that God is willing to go there with us and go to the hard questions with us but not stop there. No, it's it's to force us to ask better questions. Because just as we um, read in our affirmation of faith this morning based on Ecclesiastes 12.13, the narrator doesn't throw out the teacher's wisdom. The narrator doesn't throw out Kohela's wisdom and say, it's all wrong. He says, I don't know what to do with it. So what are you going to do, people of God? Continue to be an Israelite. What are we going to do, people of God? We're going to continue to be Christians. Therefore, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Why we put the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism in there. It's a disturbing book. I'm not going to lie. We say as... um A friend of mine and I were talking over lunch this week. We say that um, apocalyptic literature, like Revelation and the you know the part of Daniel that nobody reads, um, that that's the hard parts of the Bible, but it's not, is it? Because apocalyptic literature, we can say, well, I have no idea what that means. But wisdom literature carries with it the idea that there should be wisdom here. There should be um, there should be things that we can live our life by. And then you get to Ecclesiastes and you go, I don't have any idea what to make, how to make sense of this. And that's why I've said and will continue to say that these are fit words. They're just not final words. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It's just incomplete. And if it doesn't push you to the rest of the Bible to see what the Bible's answer to this question is, you may be settling by asking the wrong questions. Let's turn our hearts now to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Stand if you would. The teacher says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also absurdity. This is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that there, that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. Let's pray. So Father, even now by your Spirit, stir in us to ask questions. But even more importantly than that, stir in us, we pray, the desire to listen to you for answers. We need your help, and you've not left us alone. You've welcomed us into your presence, even when that means using hard words, and sometimes harsh words. Help us to wade through these waters. Instead, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Be seated. So our teacher goes back and says a few more words about wisdom. You'll recall that so far, the teacher has said, "I'm going to test all the things in the world. I, I'm very wise. Um, certainly, writing with a uh, with an air like Solomon." Um, this particular verse that we just read in verse twelve is the last time that any reference to any sort of kingly identity will be made in the rest of the book. In fact, later um, in the book, the the author will seemingly distance himself from a kingly persona. Um, but more about that later. So some some words about wisdom, then. The teacher seems, at this point, um, completely aghast at what he has seen. Um, So far, if we're reading his lab journal, if we're reading his diary, what he has seen so far is that even the most wise, even the most prudent, it still ends up in vanity. It still ends up in absurdity. So what do we do? Do we then abandon wisdom? Well, look at what he says. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Basically what he's saying there is, I have been already exhaustive in my work. You can try and prove me wrong, but you're not going to. Because I've been exhaustive in my work. So why continue in wisdom? See, Ecclesiastes can only go so far and offer so many answers, because as we see, both the wise and the fool still die in matters of ultimate import. No matter how you live your life, you die. Now, um, we're teaching right now, we're teaching uh, Nate Proverbs. We've been uh, taking a, a section of Proverbs each night and going through and studying the book of Proverbs together. And it can be tempting, as you uh, are well aware, if you've studied Proverbs, that when you read Proverbs, um, wisdom plus God's love equals a happy life. Right. This can be the way that one oftentimes reads Proverbs. The problem gets at it when you go to Ecclesiastes and you see the same expression, but now it's wisdom plus God's love equals you still die like a beast in the field. That's not a cheery ending. But it's the ending we know. I have a friend of mine, his daughter is um, a little bit older than Nate, and he was um, talking with me about... um her life and it's especially how he's um, dealing with ecclesiastes because he's he's also preaching ecclesiastes up in Madison, Wisconsin. He said the report card that his daughter brought home from school basically said that her entire life is basically made up of unicorns and sprinkles. Like that is that is her disposition towards life. And he said that for her then, for for a black and white thinking person who's also incredibly optimistic, Um, the message of Ecclesiastes isn't necessarily for her yet. But the grace of the gospel and the grace of God in Jesus is that it'll be there waiting for her one day, when she needs it, when all of a sudden the world isn't, as she'll soon find out, unicorns and sprinkles. See, Koheleth has gotten there. He's realized the world is not unicorn and sprinkles. And he can't master the world through wisdom. And so he says, what good is it then? What should I do? Zach Eswine puts it this way. He says, the wise cannot bribe God for immunity under the sun. Even the very wise can scrape their knees or need a dentist or be sentenced to death unjustly upon a cross? The question posed by Ecclesiastes will be answered by the rest of the Bible. Wisdom should be pursued. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But Ecclesiastes rips away the covering from wisdom as well. It is noble, but it is not ultimate. Wisdom is good, but even wisdom needs a savior. So so then, why not just then abandon wisdom, abandon ethics, abandon and join our lot with folly? Um, Ecclesiastes can at least offer us some guidance here, albeit not, not full guidance, but some. And here's what the wisdom says. Look at what he says in verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks with his eyes in his pockets, his eyes in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Basically, whether you're wise or whether you are a fool, you still die. That's the same event that he is talking about. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. It's absurdity. See, he's wrestling with the hard reality that even though wisdom is the better choice and wisdom is the better choice, it doesn't ultimately get far. At least it doesn't seem like it, does it? So what is he saying? When you watch a movie... um, that has a competition as part of the narrative. So we watched the other day with the kids, we watched um, I guess it's the it's technically the sync the sequel to Monsters Inc. Uh we're a little behind in our movie watching. I'm about I'm about a fifteen year lag in my queue. So if you're asking me if I've seen a movie recently, the answer is no. Um, ask me in fifteen years. It'll probably still be no, but ask me again, it'll probably be fine. We uh we watched the sequel to Monsters Inc., which was Monsters University, right? Big competition going on and it's, it's a, it's almost formulaic. You have this idea of there's, there's an underdog team and there's all these other way more accomplished, way more able teams than perhaps yours is. And the way the narrative goes is um, somewhere along the way comes a crucial moment where the underdog is tempted to cheat in order to win, and the happy ending comes when the underdog summons what is deep within them and and wins without dishonest cheating. And it looked like that's the way that Monsters University was going to go, except as it turns out, it wasn't, right? They had succumbed to the temptation to cheat the main protagonist didn't know it. But here, the foolish die. The wise die. Everybody dies. So why play by the rules at all? Why not just go and pursue folly? Because being wise won't guarantee you anything in this world, and being foolish seems like they're having a lot more fun Well, if we give our ear to the teacher in Ecclesiastes through his teaching, we would hear this. If we kind of bring together kind of all the meandering ramblings of the book and summarize his teaching on wisdom, you'd hear this. Ecclesiastes will tell you that to possess wisdom will give some measure of success. You see this in Ecclesiastes 10.10. It'll preserve life and protect. You see this in Ecclesiastes 7.12. It'll give strength, in chapter 7, verse 19, and joy, chapter 8, verse 1, and is better than mere brute strength, chapter 9, verse 16. Mankind is guided by wisdom, chapter 2, verse 3, toils by it, chapter 2, verse 21, tests and weighs experiences by it, chapter 7, verse 23, even... The practical politics of delivering cities involves wisdom in chapter 9, verse 15. Limited though it may be, wisdom is still indispensable. So then, why continue to pursue wisdom at all? The teacher resigns himself to this truth. There is an absurdity of life that runs all the way through to the grave, but... If wisdom walks away from the game, foolishness then becomes the only game in town. And if wisdom, if we abandon wisdom and say, well, I'll just join my lot with the fool, if you can't beat him, join him, folly wins the day. At least by remaining wise, although it gains him no profit, at least it means there is still an alternative on the field. There's still another team to root for besides folly. But it does leave you feeling incomplete, doesn't it? And 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 the teacher wrestles with this as well. You look at it in verse 16. For of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come... All will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He gets to the he gets to the verse that honestly, if there's a part of preparing to preach this particular sermon that has just hounded me all week, it's verse 17. Look at what he says. In verse 17, he says, So I hated life. Because what is done? under the sun was grievous to me for all is absurdity and a striving after the wind when I was living in Florida I was helping to coach for a private K through 12 school and helping them field a marching band I had some experience with marching bands they needed some help I needed some money it seemed like a good idea um, In that marching band, we were marching middle schoolers and high schoolers together on the field because that's, we needed people. And so, which by the way, putting a middle schooler in a marching band uniform is adorable. If you ever want to know what that looks like, go back and read in the Bible the story about uh, David and Goliath and when David tries to put on the king's armor and gets swallowed up by it. That's about what that's like. I learned something very uh important about uh, child developmental psychology in uh, coaching marching band, and that is the ability to do abstract reasoning develops later. Now, here's what I mean by that. If we had told my, say, French horn player that his spot was um, 12 steps off the sideline and two steps off the front hash, off the 50-yard line, that was his spot. Well, if any of you have ever marched in a marching band before, you know that it's not necessarily always an exact science. Sometimes when a formation is getting ready to form up, it may be different, and so you have to adjust accordingly. So then there was the day that came that we had this massive collision on the field because my French horn player went and stood in his spot 12 steps off the sideline and two steps off the hash off the 50-yard line. And I said, why did you not adjust when the rest of the formation was not there? He said, because you told me that was my spot. We want to live in a world that's black and white. And it's not. We want to live in a world that operates the way that formulas say the world should operate, and it doesn't. So, what do you do? What do you do with those hard words when the world is no longer unicorns and sprinkles? What do you do? Because let's be really clear. We, we want our Christians, especially our professional Christians, especially the ones that speak on behalf of God, to speak like the ones, uh, let's say, there's a, um, you may have experienced this at a particular uh, quick service fast food restaurant uh, of which there are many in town where uh, anytime you say anything mildly pleasant to the worker, they respond with my pleasure. Almost as like they're scared for their lives if they don't say my pleasure. Or maybe you want, Maybe you want life to be kind of like the Christian radio stations where it's safe for the little ears in the car, positive and uplifting. And so you hear you hear him say this, you, see, you hear him say, and I hated life. And this is the part where you're like, it sounds like you need a vacation. Maybe some R&R. Maybe some time away. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is absurd to you in striving after the wind. What do we do with the sad things? And What do we do with the lonely things? And what do we do with the empty things? I have a friend. Uh, some of you um, may have heard me talk about him before. My friend Jim is a local counselor. He and I were talking about this passage this week, and he's got a saying that he reminded me of. He says this with regularity to those that he sees. He says, if you're not living in a constant state of disappointment, you're not walking by faith. Now, that doesn't sound like what a counselor is supposed to say, does it? Counselors, after all, are supposed to help us get out of our low state, not put us in one. What Jim isn't saying is that we should be living in a state of despair. Living in a state of despair reveals that we have made something ultimate that doesn't, that can't be ultimate, that shouldn't be ultimate, and so we despair after it. Right? The other thing that Jim's not saying is that you shouldn't be living in a state of denial either. Right? Everything's fine. It's all fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. I thought that Jesus said, I have come to give them life and give it to the full. Then what do you mean by you're living in a state of constant disappointment? How is that biblical? Well, it is. It is. Because if you consider what Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation has been subjected to futility. It groans. We groan. When all else fails, the spirit within us groans, longing for the day of redemption. Groaning is not I'm fine. Groaning is I'm disappointed. So what's our teacher in Ecclesiastes saying? Is he ever going to say anything positive? Yeah, sometimes. But he has seen all the futility, all the sadness, all of the absurdity, all the vanity of life under the sun, and it's led him to this place. I hated life. And the teacher takes his place among the others in the Scriptures who would use strong words to bring their complaint to God. And friends, listen, the use of strong words doesn't mean that faith is depleted or deficient or gone but instead means that faith is finding its voice and taking its complaint to the only audience that matters. The teacher hates life, not God. It's so incredibly sad when people in the church tell people in the church that you can't be sad, that you can't say strong words, and that everything has to be upbeat and positive. Friends, read the Bible. The Bible gives voice to our lament and voice to our sadness and voice to our disappointment. And It says there's a better king and a better kingdom coming than what this world has or could offer. This is what Calvin said. He says, we're prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become disappointed with ourselves. Listen to what Zach Eswine says again. He says, If a child believes that her parents cannot handle what she actually questions or feels, she will pretend all is well or constantly tantrum about. But she will not reveal her true heart in all of its nobility and ugliness, needy for help, longing to try, rotting with secrets. But show her a parent who has a capacity for her And she will risk, argue, ask, laugh, learn, and cry in the presence of their love. He goes on and he says, God holds us together. Even the vexed and harassed among us, the wise who believe this learn not to fear revealing what is true about their despair or hatred. God's character and God's covenant anchor their voice and make every feeling and thought, no matter how beautiful or how foul, a matter of prayer for God to enter of presence with God to keep, of paraphernalia for God to redeem. It is God's covenant with us that anchors us to bring our strong words to Him. Even the words that say, I hate what this world is and what this world has become. And to actually feel it. And to actually sit there in it. Why do we use such strong words? Because sometimes life demands these words be used. If we don't, if we don't use strong words, what ends up happening is we compartmentalize our anger, we compartmentalize our sadness, and we act as if the world is not broken at all. We're only willing to come to God and to bring our praises and our happiness. But if we're sad, if we're mad, if we're lonely, if we're upset, we feel like those things, those feelings aren't welcome before God. And so we compartmentalize them and pull away. We feel as if God only wants us when we're happy. And if we're not, we've failed as a Christian. Preacher is struggling, as we all do, to find the words to say in a world that doesn't add up. So he simply says he hated life. And look, we've all, we've all read the news. We've all heard the stories. We've all experienced the sad and the, and the bad and the terrible things of this world. Parents should not have to bury their children. There should not be the need for security systems or a reckoning such as Me Too in a world, um, that, that, that seems to say that it has it all together. Simply put, we cannot look. At this world as a wise people and conclude that it is good. That is not where wisdom would take us. That's where naivete would take us. The teacher sees this and he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. So, (laughs) how then do we walk by wisdom? How then do we walk by wisdom? Even when the world, full of its trifles and trinkets and tragedies, proves itself to be constantly disappointing and sometimes devastating. Beloved, we seek wisdom not as a savior. I remember, I don't remember, it's, it's something that happens all the time. We've all said it. I just don't understand why, dot, dot, dot. Have you said this before? Something tragic or unexplainable has happened and you've said, I just don't understand why. What does that reveal? What it reveals, at least in part, is the lie that would say, if only I knew why, I could, I could, then I could understand it and it would make sense and I could excuse it. Or I could forgive it. But Ecclesiastes won't let us go there. The Bible won't let us go there. So we seek wisdom not as a Savior, but as a gift of the redemption afforded to us by our Savior. We are wise because of God and because of what our relationship with God establishes. Ecclesiastes, just so you know, Ecclesiastes is going to wrestle all throughout its pages with the question of, is all of life absurdity or is all of life a gift? And it can only see the incompleteness of life. And it's going to go, I don't know. The rest of the Bible is going to answer it. All of life is a gift. All of life is a gift, even in its tears and even in its sadness. One more quote from Zach, He was especially helpful this week in preparing for this sermon. Um, he says, in our clubs, in our workplaces, in our families, in our blended families, our churches, our governments, in our neighborhoods, wisdom is the way God's people choose to make a stand, even if it means that they are overlooked, undervalued, impoverished, slandered, forgotten, or misused. The Bible's notions are strange to us. It says that that it is better to experience poverty, dismissal, and a life of forgotten service than to find health and wealth and happiness through foolish means and for a foolish purpose. To summarize Jesus' teaching in Luke 18, it is better to have Jesus and no wealth or status in the world than to have both wealth or status without Jesus. To be living in a state of constant disappointment reveals that you have redemptive longing. To be disappointed in this world is to reject the wisdom of the world that would disguise its pain or deny its existence. Or conversely, to be so devastated as we're just destroyed. To live in a state of disappointment in this world means you are longing for a better world. And so it is through prayer and lament and protest and yearning and honest speech that we declare the wisdom from on high that is recovering the world once lost through the redeeming blood of Christ bringing forth His new creation. It's okay to use strong words. It's okay to be disappointed. The reason it's okay is because Jesus rose from the dead and is making every sad thing untrue.